Welcome to AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. Congressman Francis Rooney surprised me when we talked recently. He's a conservative Republican from a conservative district in Florida, but the issues he wanted to discuss were not standard GOP talking points. He wanted to talk about fighting climate change and protecting the Everglades and stopping offshore drilling in Florida. He brought up economic inequality and his vote for a $15 per hour minimum wage. He railed against partisan gerrymandering. I'm disappointed the congressman isn't running for re-election this year because his commitment to building bridges across partisan divides impressed me. We could sure use more elected leaders with open minds during this polarized era. Congressman Rooney and I also discussed his tenure as the U.S. Ambassador to the Holy See, a position he held from 2005 until 2008. He shared some great behind-the-scenes stories about his experiences with Pope Benedict XVI and also what he learned about the Church by engaging with the Vatican on diplomatic affairs. Finally, we talked about how the congressman's Jesuit education impacted him, which included stops at Georgetown Prep, Georgetown University, and Georgetown Law School. This episode is part of a series on faith and politics inspired by the new Jesuit document titled Contemplation and Political Action, an Ignatian Guide to Civic Engagement. Read the document and see the rest of our faith and politics coverage at jesuits.org slash election 2020. Congressman Francis Rooney, welcome to AMDG. Thanks so much for taking some time to talk with me today. Uh, first of all, how are you doing? How have you been holding up in this, these crazy times? Well, it's it's definitely a different time. Um, we've been uh, doing a lot of Zoom, and I've had Don Bayer, Bayer from Alexandria proxy voting for me since had asthma and stuff and hay fever, and I just don't want to get the COVID. And uh, I think that uh, the speakers proxy voting was a really good idea. And I know a lot of Republicans opposed it, but I think that's just because they opposed the speaker. And so I urged her to do it. So I want to show her that it, I support what she's doing. Sure. So you've decided not to run for re-election this year, which I know surprised uh, some observers. Just curious about what went into that uh, decision for you. Well, I never went into this to, to do it a long time. I mean, you don't start a political career at like 65 or something. Uh, <laughs> But I wanted to run to do certain specific things, uh, basically regarding the environment and, and the uh, Everglades restoration in Southwest Florida and about offshore drilling and things that are important to the environment in Florida and pretty well got all those accomplished. And so there's really no other major goal to achieve. The other thing is I'd like to be a good example for term limits. I think we desperately need term limits in this country. The uh, founders never would have conceived of a professional political class. And that's what we have now. So you mentioned one of those big accomplishments in the house. I'm wondering, kind of looking back at your, your time, if you have any other kind of uh, proud accomplishments and then also reflection on any challenges uh, you face uh, in the house. Well, I'm proud to have voted against Trump's two emergency funding de declarations where he siphoned off money that the Congress had appropriated for the Department of Defense and used it to build that wall. I think it's unconstitutional and it's not right. I also was, was about the only Republican to vote for the 15, I was the only Republican, to vote for the $15 minimum wage, which I think is a useful step towards resolving one of our plaguing problems in this country, which is uh, inequality of, of, of wealth and especially low wages at the lower level as service jobs, which pay less, have replaced manufacturing jobs. 
How about some of the, the challenges you, you faced in the house in your time? My biggest challenge has probably been that I speak my mind and I have real trouble compromising principles to uh, look better or save my, say, take less uh, criticism or anything like that. Uh, when I came out for the carbon tax, again, the only Republican to ever do that, um, I took a lot of grief from people in our district, which is very conservative. And I had a lot of meetings and I explained to them why it's the most market efficient way to price down carbon and take coal off the energy uh, spectrum and, and why the minimum wage is an important uh, tool to help solve one of our problems. And, you know, people, I'm not saying I convinced a lot of people, but it was challenging there. Yeah, so you're leading me right into a question about polarization. Right, right away shared a couple of ways in which it sounds like you've been a bridge builder. You're a conservative Republican, that's not a secret, uh, but also again, been involved in some working uh, environmental preservation on the minimum wage, as you mentioned, on kind of some gun safety reforms. Um, it's clear in this election season how polarized our country is and has been for some time. What are some ways you think we can kind of face that and, and work to overcome it? Well, in addition to term limits, which is certainly one of them, because then people would not be looking at this as a career, they'd be looking to do like me, accomplish a few things and go back to their business or their farm or their family or whatever. The other two things that we could do is we could figure out how to redistrict congressional districts so that they're less uh, highly partisan. If you look back in the time of Bill Clinton, I think 20 to 25 percent of the districts were called highly partisan, R plus A, B plus A, et cetera. Now it's almost 70 percent. Hmm. And that partisanship bleeds all through everything. And so that means that 70 percent of House elections are basically decided in primaries, whether it's Democrat or Republican. And that's not what the system's supposed to do. The third thing I would support and urge is that we return to the fairness doctrine, which was removed in 1986 under the Reagan administration. I don't know if you remember that. You're probably too young. I was the year I was born, Congressman. <laughs> that, that was a doctrine that required broadcasters to air opposing views when they uh, discuss political issues. It's called public service broadcasting. And when they took that away, uh, the created the platform for the rise of highly partisan media, which I think fuels a lot of these problems on both sides. Have you found as a congressman that your, your hope to do some of that bridge building and to break out of polarization, has that been met with, has that been welcomed? Has that been discouraged? What, what has been your well, experience? I, I think I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that I've made some headway with the Republican leadership about the need to broaden our base. That one of the da most dangerous things that's happened with Trump he's turned the party into some kind of populist, rural, white, poor group. And that's not going to get us to the finish line in the future. And, and I've urged work with the leadership. I've given them polling and articles and, uh, about uh, how younger people feel about guns and how they feel about the environment and about things like inequality. And we need to be, have a seat at the table to deal with those issues. I mean, it was Nixon that set up the EPA. Both Bushes expanded the Clean Air Act. We should have a seat at the table on all of those issues instead of hiding and fighting every bit of uh, change that's coming down our way, which we can't stop anyway. I had, uh, it was very rewarding to work on the offshore drilling ban. I uh, worked with Speaker Pelosi and she committed to get it done. Paul Ryan could not get it done. He had too many uh, Republican opposition in, internally, too much internal Republican op opposition and donor base opposition. And uh, so Speaker Pelosi took care of that. And I think that was an important thing for Florida. 
where do you think that this willingness for you to work across the aisle to, you know, kind of commit to your principles and to stand by them, where does that come from for you? Well, I'm a lifelong career built business guy, ran a, ran a construction company for a long time, or all family one. Uh, and so when you're in business, you have to solve problems. And like the military, they have to solve problems. That's why they're tackling the environmental stuff on their own. You don't have the luxury of sitting back and pontificating and being an ideologue and, and saying ridiculous statements that are not going to solve the problem. Sure. I'm curious, too, about your, your prior experience uh, in public service, especially as uh, ambassador to the Holy See for a few years uh, in George W. Bush's administration. Can you tell me what that experience was like? I, I'm not sure I have a, a good sense of what the life of an ambassador to the Holy See would entail. Well, it was really fantastic. I mean, it's the greatest post you could ever have. I mean, instead of spending all your time talking to some economics minister of the Italian government, I'm talking to the Pope, talking to the Secretary of State, Cardinal Perolin. Well, it wasn't him then. He was he, Cardinal Perolin, who's the Secretary of State now, was actually the main person that I met with when he was in charge of uh, part of the Secretary of State's office called the Second Section that deals with ambassadors. But um, it, it was really great. You know, there was so much, first of all, Holy See ambassador does the same thing any other ambassador does. Interlock, interlocutes with the host country uh, to deal with diplomatic issues, uh, speaks about American values and, and represents America in the host country, and entertains foreign visitors and locals and creates an atmosphere of respect and support for our country. And in that sense, it's just like any other post. The difference is that the Holy See is not deep into a lot of issues in one area, but in the issues they are deep into, which are clearly enumerated in the important papal documents like I used in my book, the Global Vatican, um, they, they apply them all over the world. When President Bush came in 2000, I think it was seven, uh, we, we spoke with the Pope and the Secretary of State about activities in like 16 different countries where the United States and the Holy See were promoting religious freedom, human dignity, seeking transparency and better governments, whether it's the Congo or Russia or Vietnam or what, 16 different countries. And so it's like sitting on top of a big globe, looking down at the world and concerning these specific uh, issues. And there's so much alignment with the United States. You know, um, if you look at um, uh, Caritas and Vertate and uh, Gaudium et Spes about religious freedom, that's placed right into our First Amendment. Pope Benedict was a really respectful of our First Amendment. He even said he wished Europe had had it. And uh, the other thing is we're the, uh, so we're the only two institutions that are founded around religious freedom. And um, that, that makes us a special place for the Holy See, as well as uh, human rights. What was your, your experience with Pope Benedict like? What was he like in those, those types of meetings and conversations? Well, he's, he's really a scholar and he's really smart. And he really knows a lot about, now obviously, church documents. But the Quran, the Hindu uh, documents, the, the Hindu, uh, I forget the name of those things. Uh, we had long conversations about the different sirahs under the Quran and how the, this is what the Pope told me. He said, you know, in the early sirahs, the uh, Mohammed is quite uh, evangelical, kind of like John the Baptist, if you will. In the later sirahs, after they'd accomplished a lot of success, he becomes hostile and aggressive and has that stuff in there about spread the word of the, by the sword and all that. And he said, so the problem we've got, which is what he enumerated at Regensburg, despite all the grief he took, he made a pretty good point. He said, we have got to help Islam come into concert 
with the 21st century and the modern world. And until they do, we're not going to agree with them. And everybody, you know, oh my gosh, can you say you're not going to agree with them? But yeah, you can. We're not. And, and so like when the Charlie Hebdo bombings happened, the first two happened while I was at the Holy See, um, the only two institutions that spoke up against them were, uh, were the United States through George Bush and the Holy See through uh, Pope Benedict. Well, there, was there anything in that work when you were there that surprised you, things you might not have thought about, uh, the Vatican or the Holy See or, or the office of the papacy uh, that you learned when you were there? Oh, yeah. I mean, I had no idea. I mean, when, when, when President Bush sat down on his couch and said, I want you to go to the Holy See, I go down to the State Department and I get this reading list and I start reading all these things, like that atheist that wrote the three-part book about Pope Benedict and then became a Catholic, the German guy, and, and all the different papal documents and how the Holy See is organized. I didn't know any of that. I mean, I'd only met two bishops in my whole life. You know, I come from a state, Oklahoma, that had like 3% Catholic when I was a kid. Now with the Hispanic immigration, it's a little higher. And so the only two bishops I'd ever met were the two that uh, had been in Oklahoma. But now I spent three years eating lunch and dinner with bishops, cardinals, monsignors, et cetera. It was fantastic. So what, when you see the Pope or bishops on the, the public stage, the public sphere, what are some of the things that you realize that, oh, maybe not everyone notices this or knows this, but oh, that you have all, a special insight people into? People don't know, especially non-Catholics and secular people, how incredibly smart and dedicated these people are. I mean, if you don't speak three or four languages over there, you don't count. I mean, I made a point of speaking Spanish all the time and as much Italian as I could learn to show them that some Americans are into languages. And, and it was very well received. The, uh, the, the, the Cardinals used to call my, my Italian Spanish because it was half Spanish, half Italian. <laughs> but so they, they don't realize how, how incredibly important, how incredibly smart these guys are and therefore what a resource they are. And the other thing is, um, I don't think people would appreciate how productive they are. Cardinal Toron told me one time, he said, you know, we've only got like 112 people over here in our diplomatic program in Rome. State Department's got 7,000 people. But they cover the countries and the knowledge of the issues just as deep as all of our bureaus and, and geographic uh, uh, organizations within the department. Why? Because they're totally productive. So as Cardinal Turan told me, he says, we don't have any distractions. We don't have businesses to worry about, families particularly, uh, spouses, et cetera. And, and he said, we work all the time. Sure. What, By the way, any... Cardinal Turan was one, of the, was one of the smartest people I met over. Hmm. Are there any stories from that time you have when, when people ask you for a favorite memory or story you won't forget? Oh, there's a lot. I mean, one of them is the very first, uh, when I went in to, to see the Pope and present my credentials, we did all the photos of the family and my aunts and uh, all that. And, and then they shut this huge door and it's just me and the Pope sitting across a desk. I'm sitting there thinking, wow, this is incredible, you know? And uh, so he, he lifted his hands like, like this, said, start talking. I couldn't talk. My mouth would move, but nothing would come out. So finally, he started talking, and that put me at ease, you know. And then I said, "I guess you get that all the time." He said, "Yeah, I do sometimes." And then we got to business about the the points that George Bush had given me to say to him, and vice versa, and got down to business. And that's where we talk a lot about the Iraq War, which he said, "Okay, that's old business. We're moving forward." And that's when we got into the talk about the Koran and the things that need to happen to put Islamic extremism in its place. Um, there were a lot of other funny vignettes. I mean, I remember when Mrs. Bush, Mrs. Bush, they wanted Mrs. Bush to go to the Olympics in late 2005 in Torino, the Winter Olympics, sure. early 2006. 
and um, she wouldn't go unless she could see the Holy See, see the Pope. So I got the call from the White House protocol office to go find out if the Pope would see Mrs. Bush in January of 2006. And he, at that time he had made a rule, he would only see accrediting ambassadors and heads of state. So I went over there to see uh, Cardinal Sedona. And I said, look, we gotta get Mrs. Bush in there. She's gonna blow off the Olympics if you don't do it. And uh, he said, well, let me try to figure something out. So the next day, we have this annual meeting with the Pope where the Pope speaks to the diplomatic corps and the deacon of the diplomatic corps speaks to the Pope. And then we all go up and shake hands and he says a few words to each um, ambassador and spouse. So I go up to him and he says, I guess we're gonna have Mrs. Bush. I said, well, you say so. So it worked out? Yeah. Another thing that was kind of funny is back when I was there, they didn't have an advanced reservation system for the Vatican Museum or the Scotty. So people would call us and we'd get them in, you know, using our, our embassy ability. Well, I got a call one day from Cardinal Paroline. He called me over there and I went in and he said, you all have had more people in the month of June than every other country has had the entire year. And I said, well, that just shows you how much George Bush and Americans believe in the Holy See. He just laughed. That's right. <laughs> So that position as ambassador to the Holy See really is at the intersection of faith and politics, which is obviously a, a big discussion around this election season and always uh, in the United States. What, how do those things come together? What do you think the role of faith is in, in public life in the United States? What should it be? What can it be? More important than ever. I mean, if you go back and read the papal documents and you look at Dignitatis Humanae or Caritas and Veritate, it's all about reason and religion uh, being... Uh, parallel tracks that are not opposite to each other. And the secularists like to say, oh, the church, it's just religion and it's, there's no, they, they abhor reason, they fought the enlightenment and all that. And that's really not the case at all. And Pope Benedict wrote eloquently about that in Caritas and Protate. And, and again, it's in Dignitas Humanae uh, uh, too, that, that reason has its place as does faith and religion. And they, when they work together, they work well for protecting human dignity and promoting uh, virtue in the world. So did you do you find that your political positions, whether it's about protecting human life in the womb, protecting the environment, working for reduction inequality, is that rooted in your faith for you? Sure, sure. I mean, I try to to, to use the principles of the church and what I've learned about uh, Catholic theology, as well as the, the obvious things that we grew up with about what we believe as Catholics, uh, to try to do the best I can every day. I, I am curious, since this is a Jesuit podcast, and that's one of the big reasons we invited you on, is you have some good Jesuit cred. Uh, I spent some time in Jesuit schools. Uh, yeah, I always tell them it's all their fault. <laughs> Between Georgetown Prep, Georgetown, and Georgetown Law, uh, if I mess up, they've got some blood on their hands. Yeah, that's right. That's three times. Sure. I'm just no, curious. fantastic. You cannot get a better education than a Jesuit education. Just, they, 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 taught, taught, they teach you to think. They challenge you all the time. They teach you to look at problems from all sides, as well as the deep understanding of whatever subject matter is being taught. I'm just wondering if you had any any mentors or things that you can remember back in any one of your Jesuit stops tons, uh, that have been important to you. Tons of Jesuit mentors. Father Dugan and Father Beatty at Prep, uh, Father Davis at, at Georgetown, the three of whom married us. You know, Father Davis was my dad's best friend at Georgetown. And one time, I think when I was a senior going into second semester where nobody does anything anyway, if you, if you tell the truth. And um, 
I got a call. I'd signed up for all the dumb courses, you know, basketball, ba basket weaving and whatnot, and badminton. And, and, and so I got a call from Geraldine, who was Father Davis's assistant. And she said, the dean wants to see you. And she's never said that before. I used to go over to see Father Davis all the time. She said, it'd always be Father Davis wants to see you. So I knew I was in deep trouble here. I go over there. He looked at me and he had my requests for courses. And he said, I'm not going to let your father pay for this. You got to take at least two good courses. And he gave me a list to pick from. Huh. You couldn't do that nowadays. Yeah, right. Uh, no, that's too funny. Um, I. I do want to ask too, so again, drawing on your values and public service, obviously the last part of your, your term here in your, in your final term in, in Congress has been preoccupied with response to the coronavirus. I'm wondering how you would evaluate the federal government's response so far and, and what you think okay. uh, the House can continue doing uh, going forward, even into the next session, uh, to, to continue helping Americans in this time. Well, first of all, as everybody from j Powell, who, by the way, was in my class at Georgetown Prep, uh, smartest guy in our class has said, we need to do another stimulus bill to hurt, help people that are just really having a tough time. And if we don't help them, that's gonna create more and more animosity and, and exacerbate the inequality problem that we can't figure out how to deal with anyway. Um, I personally think that the federal government, the administration has done a terrible job of dealing with coronavirus. We've had no national strategy, no coordinated testing, no co early on, no coordinated testing, no coordinated mask wearing, uh, I mean, people actually listen to President Trump. If he would say wear a mask, there will be people that would do it that won't do it now. And that's the kind of leadership we need. I guarantee you, if it was Clinton or Bush or Obama, they'd do that. And, uh, um, you know, he, the, the, the administration or the president was briefed as early as 3 January uh, by the intelligence uh, officers about how serious this threat was. And 11 other times in January and February, he did nothing. And even Peter Navarro wrote two memos, one in January, one in early February, saying, we have got to get our arms around this thing. There was no reason to wait to the third week of March to figure out that this was a serious problem. They had superior knowledge and didn't act on it. So when you return back to kind of private life, like what, what do you think you'll be involved in? Do you think you'll be using your voice as a citizen to continue speaking up on, on these things? Oh, yeah, what, 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 do you, what plans do you have? Oh, sure. I mean, I, I used to speak all the time about diplomacy and the Holy See and the State Department and things like that. I hope to continue to do that. Probably we'll get involved with a couple of environmental think tanks. I've worked very closely with the uh, uh, Climate Leadership Caucus and with the uh, Environmental Defense Fund and with Oceana. And then I'll probably get involved with a couple of Latin American think tanks since I spent about half of my working life in Latin America. And we still do a lot of business down there. And, and uh, maybe the Inter-American Dialogue, uh, maybe the Wilson Center or the Council uh, for the Americas, something like that. Will you take some time to relax or are you someone who like needs a lot of stuff to keep going? Well, I'll join a couple of things. You know, what happened to me when I got the job for the Holy See, I was involved in so much stuff, like four private company boards, Georgetown, uh, Notre Dame, all kinds of stuff. I'm busy as I could be. And, and, and when I had to get off of all that, Fred Fielding was my lawyer. And he's, he's, he used to be a White House counsel under HW. And he, he said, uh, or Reagan, he said, uh, now that you're off all that, you do this deal, you'll be freed up when you come back. Well, I messed up, okay? I got back from Rome in 2008 or nine and got right back into public boards private boards, think tanks, et cetera. And so I don't want to do that this time. I'm being very careful. I want, to, I want to just figure out a couple of things to do where I can make an impact and spend a little more time with the kids who are all running our businesses. Sure. 
Well, I'll mention that you said Notre Dame. I didn't. I get trouble. You know, I get into trouble at Jesuit conferences. I have two degrees from Notre Dame, and spent you know time. Can there. I tell you one more vignette about that? Notre, Notre, I'm always happy to have Notre Dame content on the Jesuit podcast. There, there was a uh, when we got to Rome. You know, one of the things you do is you have all the different groups of priests over, and so the Jesuits they waited till we till we've been there a little bit. And this guy, Father Cox, and I think it's Father Case or something. Anyway, there was three or four of them came over for dinner. And they hadn't even gotten into the front door before they said, what's this business about all your kids going to Notre Dame? And I said, well, it wasn't Presbyterian style predestination. It was strictly that my oldest son was an engineer. And so he had to go where there's a Catholic engineering curriculum. And then Notre Dame does such a great job, as you know, of building community. And so does Georgetown. Sure. But once they get one, they tend to get the rest of them. Yeah, well, my, my kid's sister did follow me, so that, that proved out in our family as well. Oh, Skipped over catching, my, my brother. Catching uh, Dorados. You catch the first Dorado, and you don't pull him out of the water, put a couple more poles in, and you catch another couple of them. <laughs> exactly. My, uh, my college roommate at Notre Dame is now uh, a Jesuit, though, so they, oh, Jesuits wow. got one back that way. So, Well, Congressman Rooney, thank you so much for the time. Thank you for your, your work, your public service. You're uh, sticking your neck out to, to build bridges. Uh, just appreciate that, and uh, all the best wishes to you in the next stage of your life. Can I put one more plug in for Father Conroy? He is such a great guy and is oh, so sure. important uh, in the house. And some of these evangelicals tried to uh, get rid of him a couple of years ago, and it was a really horrible move. Paul Ryan even fell for it. But Nancy Pelosi made sure that didn't happen. And I, one of many reasons why I appreciate her leadership. The other thing is Father Reese was invaluable in my, helping me write my book. And he turned the Georgetown uh, Woodstock Library over, made it freely available to me and my researcher. And he gave me all kinds of inserts, in, insights. You know, his book on the Vatican is one of the most defining ones about how the Vatican really works. Oh, excellent. No, we'll pass that on to them. We have a conversation with Father Reese on the, the podcast as well coming up in this pre-election time. So thank you again, though, uh, Congressman, and uh, enjoy the rest of your week. Thank you very much. Have a great day. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. The show is edited by Marcus Bleach. Our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Dara Sump, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, and me, Mike Jordan-Lasky. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with a Jesuit vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire.